Iran faces sanctions for providing drones for Russia's war in Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russia declares martial law in some of the territory it seized. It's Thursday, October 20th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up... I have been very clear that I am... Mr. Speaker, that I am sorry and that I have made mistakes. British Prime Minister Liz Truss is rejecting calls that she resigned six weeks into her term. Also this hour, with early voting starting in Massachusetts this weekend, election officials say false claims have some people overly concerned about election fraud. Someone brought in two ballots said, look, you sent me two ballots. And we looked at him and I said, ma'am, this one's for the primary and this one's for the November. And the debate over who counts as black when it comes to the census. Sunny in the 50s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. In Ukraine, officials are telling people they need to be ready for rolling blackouts and to conserve energy. This after Russia repeatedly struck at energy infrastructure, taking out around a third of the country's power stations. Meanwhile, Ukraine says Russia's use of drones from Iran is a violation of a 2015 UN Security Council resolution. Linda Fasulo reports the U.S., Britain and France, which agree with Kyiv, requested a meeting of the Security Council. Both Russian and Iranian UN envoys strongly deny that the drones were Iranian-made. And in response to a Ukrainian offer to allow UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres to send experts to inspect the drones, Russia's envoy said there is no mandate to do so. He also warned that Moscow would have to reevaluate cooperation with the UN chief if such an investigation is carried out. Meanwhile, U.S. spokesperson for the U.S. mission to the U.N., Nate Evans, said the Security Council meeting provided ample evidence that Russia is using Iranian-made drones in attacks on Ukraine. For NPR News, I'm Linda Fasulo in New York. Ahead of the midterm elections next month, President Biden is back on the campaign trail today, heading to Pittsburgh to tout infrastructure investments that help rebuild the Fern Hollow Bridge in the state with Democratic Senate candidate John Fetterman. Biden then hosts a fundraiser for Fetterman in Philadelphia. His race against Trump-supported TV Dr. Mehmet Oz could determine who controls the U.S. Senate next year. Fewer people are going to college this fall compared to a year ago. NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny reports the steady decline follows historic drops in the number of college students during the pandemic. During the first two years of the pandemic, undergrad enrollment fell 6.6 percent. That's about one million fewer students enrolled in college. In the fall of 2022, undergraduate enrollment is down 1.1 percent. It's a decline, but a much smaller one. Doug Shapiro leads the research center at the National Student Clearinghouse, which released the preliminary data. We're seeing smaller declines, but when you're in a deep hole, the fact that you're only digging a tiny bit further (laughs) is not really good news. The declines are at all types of institutions, private nonprofits, four-year public schools, and for-profit colleges. Community colleges only saw a 0.4% enrollment loss compared to fall of 2021. Alyssa Nadwarney, NPR News. 
World financial markets, Asian markets were lower by the close. The Nikkei, the main market in Japan, down nearly 1%. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong down 1.4%. U.S. futures contracts are trading in mixed territory at this hour. Dow futures are up about three-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ futures are down about one-tenth. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Today is day four of a teacher strike in Haverhill. There will be no classes again today. The city's negotiations with the teachers' union ended last night without an agreement. WBUR's Max Larkin reports that both sides called the talks emotional but productive. Haverhill officials have accepted the union's financial proposal. It'll cost the district about $25 million and put teacher salaries on par with similar districts. The school committee's lead negotiator, Scott Wood, says it wasn't easy fitting that proposal within the municipal budget. We have to balance providing fair contracts to all of our staff. At the same time, we have a responsibility to the taxpayer in Haverhill to make sure that we deliver them a contract that is affordable. It wasn't finances, but language around a new school safety system that pushed talks into today. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. The state's transportation system gets low grades among voters. That's according to a Mass Inc. polling group survey out today that finds 78 percent of voters view the system of roads and bridges as fair to poor. The poll also finds that many voters supported this summer's shutdown of the Orange Line on the MBTA. Richard Parr is Mass Inc.'s senior research director. We found that 59 percent of voters statewide And similar numbers, even a little bit higher, closer in the people who'd be impacted by these. They thought that the shutdown that we just went through was worth doing, and they also favor that approach in the future. Parr says voters in the survey ranked improving highways, roads, and bridges as their top transportation issue, followed by improving public transportation. A state ethics commission has dismissed a case against a former Worcester district attorney. Prosecutors allege that D.A. Joseph Early violated a conflict of interest law by urging state police to revise a woman's arrest report. The woman is a daughter of a county judge. Early says it's regular practice to remove offending language from police reports like the one in question. He says he wanted to protect a woman with addiction, not her father. A Western Mass woman is accused of using bees to attack sheriff's deputies in Longmeadow. Police say the deputies were enforcing an eviction order last week when the woman pulled up to the home with containers filled with bee nests. Hamden County Sheriff Nick Kochi says the woman rattled the bees to make them angry, then released them. Several people were stung. It put some of our staff in peril. Went to the emergency room for several hours and Another one of our deputies was uh, highly allergic uh, and was stung, but managed uh, okay. The woman has pleaded not guilty to assault and battery charges. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballets, as anticipated. With works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere, November 3rd to 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Bruins are back home tonight to take on the Anaheim Ducks. And in your forecast, sunny today and windy at times with a high in the mid to upper 50s. Clear overnight with temperatures falling to around 40. Sunny again tomorrow and in the lower 60s. Sunny and 60s on Saturday. It's 42 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include Morgan Stanley with their podcast, Thoughts on the Market offering concise takes on current events and their implications for financial markets. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. 
Thoughts on the Market. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel in Washington. And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. A nationwide electricity shortage starts today in Ukraine. People are being asked to conserve electricity after Russian attacks using missiles and Iranian-made drones on power stations. Now, Iran denies sending Russia kamikaze drones, and Tehran demands that the West provide proof. But the U.S. says Iran is lying, the European Union is preparing more sanctions, and Iran's military cooperation with Russia may not end there, with reported plans by Tehran to send surface-to-surface missiles, more drones, and military trainers to aid the Russians. To find out what's behind this, we're turning to Peter Kenyon in Istanbul. Uh, Peter, Tehran and Moscow have cooperated militarily before, but why is Iran getting involved now? Well, I'm seeing reports that Russia's own stockpile of ballistic and cruise missiles is shrinking, uh, so that could be one reason. Uh, Iran is reportedly supplying Russia with medium-range missiles as well as the Iranian uh, Shahed drones that are now being seen attacking Ukrainian targets. Uh, It's got Western nations scrambling somewhat to help Ukraine counter these new weapons. Beyond that, Iran has been paying more attention to its alliance with Russia as well as China as its ties with Western powers have frayed. The more hopeful days of the Iran nuclear agreement, they gave way to a return to hostilities during the Trump administration. Uh, There were some hopes about reviving the deal after President Biden took office. But even though both sides said they wanted to restore the deal, months of talks uh, failed and now appear to be essentially frozen, in part because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and Tehran's support for Moscow. But how does greater involvement in this promote Iran's national interests? Well, it certainly demonstrates to Russia anyway, Iran has some value in this alliance. Uh, Now, whether that alliance can provide Iran with the support and benefits Tehran was hoping to see out of improved ties with the West, uh, that remains to be seen. Analysts say it's probably unlikely, but it shows Iran can contribute to the alliance. And there's another benefit uh, for Iran that may largely play out domestically at home in Iran. Uh, Tehran has always seen itself as a major world power. And moves like this provide Iranian leaders with something to point to when they want to talk about Iran's place as an important actor on the world stage, a country whose interests must always be taken into account. If there are consequences for Iran, what would they likely be? Well, a good question. On the positive side, arms deals bring in revenue. Um, Iran has suffered for years under Western sanctions, uh, and they could certainly use the money. Uh, That was the main point of the nuclear agreement, uh, as far as Iran was concerned, of course, uh, to get out from under the sanctions. Uh, Also, one of the main arguments critics used to attack it, that that money would be flowing to the Revolutionary Guard Corps, the military, and could be used in attacks against Israel or other U.S. allies. Now, on the other hand, these latest events are expected to increase Western pressure pressure on Iran. Uh, They dim hopes for diplomatic initiatives, such as the attempt to revive the nuclear agreement. On the contrary, we're seeing now uh, European Union sanctions being imposed already against Russia over the Ukraine invasion, and now it looks like the EU is following up with sanctions on Iran. Uh, An EC spokeswoman says the EU has gathered sufficient evidence to justify sanctions, and members are looking toward a clear, swift, and firm EU response. NPR's Peter Kenyon is in Istanbul. Peter, thanks. Thank you. Now, what steps might the U.S. take against Iran, and would those actions push Tehran closer to Moscow? The State Department spokesman, Vedant Patel, says any arms deal between Russia and Iran violates a U.N. resolution that bars Iran from buying and selling weapons. We will continue to take practical, uh, aggressive steps to make these weapons sales harder, including sanctions, export control actions, 
against any entities involved. Joining us to talk about the implications is Joshua Landis. He is director of the he is the director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Good morning, Joshua. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Layla. So Russia and Iran cooperating militarily isn't new. We saw it in Syria. Is this moment different? Um, it is different, um, but it's based on the long cooperation in Syria, where the two sides fought together very closely to uh, preserve the rule of Bashar al-Assad and uh, stability from their point of view in Syria. And <clears throat> this is also the, the relationship between Russia and Syria has also been uh, cemented because the United States has sided with the Gulf states very resolutely in Israel, and that has pitted them against Iran and Iran's Shiite allies. And so Russia has really found a place for itself in the Middle East, um, working alongside Iran. So what are the larger ramifications here of this military cooperation between Russia and Iran for the U.S. and the West? Well, it's clear that um, it's another state that's going to supply these arms, which we've seen have also have had a, uh, an important impact on the fighting and have allowed Russia to destroy a certain percentage of the electric generation in Ukraine. So it's, um, it, it makes the, the war more difficult. We've seen this already with, with President Biden's um, demand from the Saudis that they, that they increase oil supplies in order to try to bring down inflation and help President Biden in this war in Ukraine. And um, the Saudis have not uh, given that. In fact, they've, they've reduced supply, which right. is going to raise prices. So, so it, it, it shows that the, the, the entire world is not on board uh, with the United States, and it's going to be a tougher fight than one might think. Is the threat of more sanctions against Iran, the EU is already preparing sanctions, the U.S. is promising aggressive steps, is that strategy going to pull Iran back from getting involved, or is it going to push them closer to... Well, I fear it will push them closer. Mm. You know, one of the main reasons that Iran is doing this is because it's already been driven into a corner, that the failure to reestablish the Iran nuclear deal that uh, President Trump broke off in 2018 it leaves Iran with very few choices. Its economy is suffering, and that's one of the reasons why this latest uprising has um, has begun in Iran. Mm -hmm. And uh, Iran has nobody else to trade with, so it has decided that it must seek, uh, it must turn to Russia for support and strategic alignment. That that was said very clearly by Ali Akbar Velayati, a, a um, an important advisor to the Supreme Leader, just recently. But will this not make the situation worse? I mean, when you think about what's happening domestically in Iran, these mass protests, the struggling to recover economically under sanctions, the threat of more sanctions. I mean, why take the risk of making it even worse and angering the West more? Because um, Iran is hoping that the world will be realigned and that it will establish greater trade with Russia and China. It's just signed a... Um, a memo of understanding with Russia that's supposed to increase trade to 40 billion from only 4 billion. We'll see if that's possible. But it's done something similar with China. It's building a important rail link to the Central Asian states as well as with Russia to try to improve trade. So this seems to be, I, I think Iran has given up on the Iran deal. The West no longer can lure it into um, to not doing these things in the hopes that somehow the West is going to 
help Iran's economy. It, it's quite clear that President Biden has has a very tough road ahead if he wanted to restart the Iran deal because many Democrats as well as Republicans are against it. It's not popular in the West and Iran feels it has very few choices. So really the end of the Iran nuclear deal, even European uh, members who are still part of that deal are saying Iran breached it by selling weapons to Russia. Uh, yes, this is, um, you know, there, there are many sanctions on and I guess America can impose further sanctions It'll be very hard to do it through the U.N. because, of course, Russia and China are on the side of the U.N. So um, I don't see many, many, many ways that the United States can pressure Iran further without uh, without doing something more drastic and perhaps military. Joshua Landis, the director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Thank you so much for your time. A pleasure. Some U.S. colleges and universities have endowments that rival the economies of entire countries, boosted in recent years by astronomical returns on their investments. But as NPR's David Gurr reports, those returns are now falling back to earth. Schools have made mountains of money off their investments, and endowments really ballooned during the pandemic when stocks were on a record-setting run. Chris Brightman used to manage billions of dollars for the University of Virginia. Today, he's the CEO of the investment firm Research Affiliates. Endowments reported, you know, let's call it anywhere between uh, 25 to 30 percent positive returns up to greater than 50 percent. Which is massive. Harvard's endowment grew to two times the size of Iceland's GDP. And while schools have funneled some of that money into scholarships, it's also paid for luxe dorms and gleaming gyms, some with climbing walls. But endowments are sharing how they did in the last fiscal year, which ended in June. And in a matter of months, there's been this dramatic swing from those double-digit percentage gains to losses, which will lead to some introspection on college campuses. There's going to be the inevitable pressure to say, what are we doing wrong and why aren't we keeping up? To be fair, a lot of this has to do with the stock market. During that fiscal year, the S&P 500 fell by more than 10 percent, and the Nasdaq fell by about 23 percent. But endowments don't just invest in stocks and bonds. They're in private equity and venture capital, commodities. That's because they've embraced risk as they've tried to make more money. And Chris Brightman says that makes it harder to know how they're doing. There's, there's just a whole array uh, of uh, private funds that are investing in assets that are not publicly traded and therefore don't have a readily apparent market value which could spell trouble down the line if those riskier investments tumble. Endowments face uncertainty that could last a long time. Cornell is among several schools that swung from record-setting returns to losses. And the head of its investment office warned in a statement, the likelihood of an extended period of lower returns appears heightened. David Gura, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, with record high rents and a historic housing shortage, advocates are trying a new strategy to house people who are homeless. Pairing them up as roommates. It's 719. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MIT Museum, completely reimagined and now open in its new location in Kendall Square. Curious? I'm Robin Young. The award-winning author of the seminal cookbook for cakes, The Cake Bible, is out with a new book just in time for the holidays that will be a holy book for bakers, The Cookie Bible. Get out your sheet pans next time, here and now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Sunny today with a high of 57. There may be some gusty winds. Tonight, skies stay clear and temperatures fall to a low around 41. Tomorrow, a sunny Friday that'll be a little warmer with a high near 62. It warms up a little more on Saturday to near 67. Right now, it's 42 degrees in Boston at 720. NPR comes from this station and from Doubleday, publisher of The Boys from Biloxi by John Grisham, a new novel of fathers and sons, crime and punishment, loyalty and revenge. In stores now and available as an audiobook and ebook. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches tax-exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. With astronomical rents and a historic housing shortage, it's harder than ever to help people who are homeless get off the streets. Now some places are trying something new, pairing them up as roommates. As NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports, it can be a tough sell. Eric Perkins greets me on the front porch of the house where he lives in Norfolk, Virginia. Y'all come on in. The home is divided into two apartments. Perkins' place is on the first floor. He shared it for more than two years and shows me around. Down the hall is his bedroom. Then... So I'm in the room that we share. It's small, but it's enough for us. The place came furnished with things like new sofas and homey knickknacks. There's a small backyard. What really made me like the house is the kitchen, because I like to cook. Like, this is where I want to be. Before moving in, Perkins had been homeless for three years. He'd lived on the beach in Virginia Beach, in a shelter, and during the pandemic, a hotel. His monthly disability payment is just under $800. The average local rent for a one-bedroom? Over 1000 Still, when a local nonprofit suggested Perkins share an apartment with another unhoused person, his first thought was no. I was real skeptical because of the, the things I was seeing inside the shelter. A lot of drug use, uh, a lot of alcohol abuse, PTSD. It was a lot of veterans there. And when they told me, I was like, I don't want to be in the house with somebody like that. 
But after seeing this place and meeting the roommate he was paired up with, Perkins says he decided to try it out. His rent is $600. He gets a lot of help from housing aid. He says that first roommate was a good match with his personality, neat and quiet. We got to know each other and we respected each other's space. We shared everything and yeah, it was really nice. And it was the same thing when he moved in. He is Leon Corbrew next to him on the couch, who moved in when the other roommate moved out. I've been since last April. Yeah. April. Both men are in their 50s. They say they get along just fine, though mostly keep to themselves. I used to cook for both of us every day. You yeah. used to? You don't anymore? No, no. You don't cook. like his cooking? No. I eat a lot. I eat a lot. Getting homeless people into their own apartment without roommates is considered the gold standard for achieving independence. But the housing crunch is making it all but impossible in many places. And Oliva, who heads the National Alliance to End Homelessness, is seeing more interest in matching up roommates. The housing market right now is incredibly tight. We're seeing vacancy rates at sort of record lows for rentals, especially for affordable rental units. Without the roommate option, provider Todd Walker says there's no way he could place as many people. He runs the Judeo-Christian Outreach Center in Virginia Beach, which found the roommate for Eric Perkins. Walker started trying shared housing eight years ago and says he's learned how to do it well, but he learned the hard way. We had clients that weren't paying, other clients giving that client their money to pay for the utility and it wasn't getting paid. And it was just, it was a catastrophe. Major lesson number one, have a separate lease for each roommate. That way, one person can be moved or evicted without everyone being kicked out. Also, he says, keep utilities in the landlord's name and include them in the rent. But this whole idea can also be a tough sell to landlords. Walker offers incentives, bonuses, a double deposit. He says these arrangements often let him house people who would otherwise be denied a lease because of a lack of income, a criminal record, or past eviction. There's just not any apartment complexes around that's going to be that flexible. Landlord Sophia Sills-Taylor owns the house where Perkins and his roommate live. When she heard about Walker's program five years ago, she was desperate to rent out a couple places. She'd been using Craigslist, but found those tenants fly by night. Working with the nonprofit seemed more stable, even if its clients were homeless. So when they come in, they don't just say, okay, here's the person, goodbye. They help them with getting blankets and pots and pans and all that, help them set up a household. And then they're coming to see them. For the first few months, a case manager visits a lot to make sure everything's going okay. Of course, anyone who's had roommates knows there can be tension, but people who've experienced trauma might have a harder time adjusting or a mental illness could flare up. The case manager keeps an eye out and helps roommates learn to resolve conflicts. So anytime I've had a little issue with somebody, I can always call up and say, hey, uh, so-and-so is having (laughs) this issue, and then they talk to them. Making this type of shared housing work better is a mission for Chris Freed. She's with L.A. Family Housing in Los Angeles, where the housing and homeless crises hit early and hard. Now she gets calls for training from across the country. Kentucky, Oklahoma, Hawaii, uh, a community in Texas and North Carolina. Freed wants people to know this is not the old sober housing model of packing people in bunk beds. And she says even those struggling with addiction or mental health can thrive with a good roommate. 
L.A. Family Housing is piloting a personality matching tool. Yes, like Match.com. And then we put them in a room together and let them decide. We give them, you know, a document that shows like the flags where there's things that don't necessarily completely mesh so that those are the questions that they can ask each other to determine if they would potentially be a good fit or not. Right now, placing people with roommates can take a lot of time, cutting deals with landlords case by case. Freed and others would like to see federal and local rules changed to make it easier, like guidelines for deciding shared rent and the subsidies that are tied to it. Back in Norfolk, Eric Perkins has finally gotten a housing voucher so he can afford to move to his own place. He's excited about having more privacy, but says his time with roommates has been really good. I'm telling anybody that it's, it's better than being on the street. If you can deal with, you know, other people's issues and, you know, little stuff that get on your nerves and you get past all that, you'll be fine. And like most roommate situations, it doesn't have to be forever. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Norfolk. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Ahead on Morning Edition, the U.S. Supreme Court takes up the question of who qualifies as black as part of a fight over voting rights in Louisiana. It's 729. Coming to City Space Monday, October 24th, here and now co-host Robin Young interviews whistleblower Chelsea Manning about her new memoir, readme.text. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The European Union has agreed to impose new sanctions on Iran for supplying Russia with drones to attack targets in Ukraine. At the UN, the Security Council is discussing how to respond amid denials from Russia and Iran. Linda Fasulo has more. Both Russian and Iranian UN envoys strongly denied that the drones were Iranian-made. And Moscow's envoy warned that Russia would have to reevaluate cooperation with UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres if he authorizes an inspection of downed drones in Ukraine, as Kiev has offered. U.S. spokesperson Nate Evans, meanwhile, said the Security Council meeting provided ample evidence that Russia is using Iranian-made drones. A new report published by ProPublica and NPR shows some industries in the U.S. continue to rely on asbestos. Despite the health risks, including cancer, asbestos is still used in the chemical industry. Sarah Bowden with member station WESA has more. The Environmental Protection Agency has proposed a full ban on asbestos, which is something that many public health experts say is long overdue, but the rule isn't finalized yet and is facing real pushback. The report found some older plants still use asbestos to produce chlorine, and in certain cases, current safety regulations are not being followed. 
This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will provide an update today to how the city is caring people at Mass, caring for people at Mass and Cass. The intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard has become an epicenter for people dealing with addiction and homelessness. Yesterday, the city moved people experiencing homelessness from the nearby Southampton Street. They were relocated around the corner. On Beacon Hill, some lawmakers want to know why new and larger state incentives for electric vehicles are not yet available. At a hearing yesterday, legislators grilled members of the Baker administration on the status of the incentives and other provisions of a climate bill the legislature passed earlier this year. More now from WBUR's Miriam Wasser. The law raises the state electric vehicle incentive from $2,500 to $3,500, and it extends this money to used vehicles. Senator Mike Barrett said the legislature's intention was for the new incentives to start immediately. It's hard for me to accept that the $3,500 minimum subsidy is still not available to my constituents and to other people in Massachusetts. Why is that? State officials say they're working on the administrative back end of things and waiting for lawmakers to appropriate money for the program. So optimistically, they're looking at sometime next year for a rollout. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. The T will increase weekend train service to and from Salem to help deal with this year's historic Halloween crowds. Officials say the additional trains will run from North, Today, North Station to Salem and between Salem and Beverly. Salem's mayor is encouraging visitors to take public transportation instead of driving. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities, essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins skate with the Anaheim Ducks. And in your forecast, clear skies and temperatures in the upper 50s today. There may be some high winds. Tonight it falls to the low 40s. Tomorrow we end the week with another sunny day in the low 60s. The sunny weather continues on Saturday, then clouds move in on Sunday with a chance of rain. It's 42 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at Athena Health. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin in Washington. And I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. The British government is once again in chaos. Last week, Prime Minister Liz Truss was forced to fire her Treasury Secretary. The two of them had championed an economic agenda that sent mortgage rates soaring and crashed the pound. And last night, another senior minister left and took shots at Truss on the way out. The prime minister is clinging to an office she's occupied for just over six weeks. Let's go to NPR's London correspondent, Frank Langford. Frank, things are moving fast on this, so where did it leave off? Actually, last night, as uh, Layla was saying, the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, she resigned. It's not clear whether she quit or was pushed, but I'm not sure it really matters because she criticized Truss 
on the way out in this letter for implementing the very economic policies that the prime minister actually ran against. And then yesterday, we have these things called prime minister's questions here. And the opposition labor leader, his name is Keir Starmer, he said he thought, you know, Trust should just follow her cabinet secretaries out the door. This is the way he put it. A book is being written about the Prime Minister's time in office. <laughs> Apparently it's going to be out by Christmas. Is that the release date or the title? Uh, Trust, of course, she says she's not going anywhere. Here's how she put it. Mr Speaker, I am a fighter and not a quitter. All right, so not a quitter, but she could be pushed out. Uh, so given how quickly things have unraveled for her, how much support does she have uh, for members of her own parliament? Uh, not much at all. Eh? Uh, people here, I think, think that her resignation is only probably a matter of time. The Daily Star, it's a tabloid. It's running this live stream of a photo of trust and a wilting head of lettuce to see which lasts longer. Um, the party doesn't even seem to be operating effectively in some ways. Last night over in Parliament, it was chaotic uh, about this vote about fracking that they had. There's a, a member of Parliament with the Tories named Charles Walker. He called it a shambles and a disgrace. And he said this, he said, the damage they've done to our party is extraordinary. I've had enough of talentless people. Talentless people. What does Walker mean by talentless people? I think there's a sense here, A, among analysts and lawmakers in the party that Truss has surrounded herself with kind of second and third rate parliamentarians, in part to make sure there was nobody in her own cabinet that could knock her off. And some people say this highlights a systemic problem in the way um, this country operates. You can appoint somebody as important as the Chancellor of the Exchequer, that's like our Treasury Secretary, without any oversight like you'd get in the United States with Senate confirmation. Patrick Dunleavy, he's a emeritus professor of political science over at London School of Economics that I chat with. And this is the point that he made. The whole incident of Liz Truss coming into power appointing a not very well-known person as chancellor, pushing through a whole series of unfunded tax cuts and a, a budget without any economic forecasts, and then having to tear it all up within four weeks. That is a very good example of what happens when you don't have checks and balances. Truss is Britain's fourth prime minister since the Brexit vote of 2016. I mean, how has a party that used to be known for stability become so unstable? So many reasons, but Brexit would be one right-wing populist tilt of the Tories. But as Patrick Dunleavy was talking about, this unwillingness of leaders to level with the public about the inevitable trade-offs. You know, people refer to here as cakeism. Boris Johnson famously said he was pro-having cake and pro-eating it. And basically, what we're finding is when you're promising these things you can't deliver, you end up with the financial and political chaos we now see here in this country. And if the Tories can't right the ship, this is the best opportunity for the Labor Party in years. NPR's Frank Langford. Frank, thanks. Good to talk, eh? Who counts as black in the United States? That thorny question has reached the U.S. Supreme Court. That's because some Republicans in Louisiana want a narrower definition of blackness to be used in voting rights lawsuits. Such a change could curtail the power of black voters across the country. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong has more. It's not the first time the Supreme Court's been asked to weigh in on who counts as black in voting maps. The uh, first is number 02182 Georgia versus Ashcroft. Back in 2003, then-Justice Sandra Day O'Connor announced a ruling for a Georgia redistricting case that hinged, in part, on a calculation. It's used to help test whether a map of election districts violates the Voting Rights Act by minimizing black voting power. The technical term for that calculation is... Black voting age population of between... 30 and determining who makes up that black voting age population became more complicated after U.S. Census forms started allowing people to mark more than one box to report their race. 
So the Supreme Court's ruling in 2003 in that Georgia case set a standard. It was a side note to the main question in that case. But now that side note has been moved right to the center of a debate about racial fairness. Kareem Creighton, a former law professor who's now a redistricting consultant, says for close to two decades, voting rights cases that focused exclusively on the voting power of black people have followed that standard from 2003. That includes black people who also checked off the box for white, Asian, or another racial category. We sort of understood this to be more or less settled policy that Democrats and Republicans alike have used. But in a filing to the Supreme Court, Republican state officials in Louisiana are now calling that definition of black a, quote, independent legal error. The Louisiana Republicans argue that black should only include people who check off either just the black box or both black and white and do not identify as Latino, which the federal government sees as an ethnicity that can be of any race. I think what it really reflects is another tactic to narrow the ability of minorities to win representation. That's Morgan Kauser, a voting rights historian from the California Institute of Technology, who's skeptical of the Louisiana Republicans' arguments, including that the Supreme Court's 2003 ruling for the Georgia case should not be applied to their case because the cases are about different sections of the Voting Rights Act. Still, there may be another driver of this legal debate over blackness. For some, I think that there's a moral concern and they want to push towards a colorblind society. This is Atiba Ellis, a professor at Marquette University Law School who specializes in voting rights law. I think that there are political forces that want to erase considering race from our politics, despite the long history and even the de facto problems that we see ongoing today. A lower court judge cited that history in rejecting a narrower definition of black, The judge wrote that it would be, quote, paradoxical, to say the least, unquote, to ignore Louisiana's long and well-documented expansive view of blackness, which once included using the one-drop rule to define a black person as anyone with ancestors who were considered black. There was a very specific purpose for using this blood math. And that purpose, says Wendy Godin, a historian of race at Xavier University of Louisiana, was to define racially ambiguous people as black and to preserve white political power. The way Godin sees it, this current legal fight over who counts as black and redistricting. It has nothing to do with people's identity. It has to do with power. Power that, depending on how the Supreme Court rules, may shrink for black voters as growing numbers of people identify with more than one race. Anzi Luang, NPR News. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, as early voting begins in Massachusetts this weekend, local election officials say some voters are overly concerned about election fraud. And in our next hour, Montana election officials are blaming last-minute changes for inaccurate information included in an official guide mailed out to voters. It's 742. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. A heads up for Redline riders. There are delays of up to 20 minutes right now because of some overnight construction that ran too late. In your forecast, upper 50s and windy today under sunny skies. We fall to the low 40s tonight. Tomorrow, another sunny day to end the week in the low 60s. Sunny and mid-60s on Saturday. Saturday, then clouds in low 60s on Sunday. It's 43 degrees in Boston. Now, in business news, the Department of Energy is giving two Massachusetts companies more than half a billion dollars to boost manufacturing of batteries for electric vehicles. Westboro-based Ascend Elements is getting $480 million to construct a new manufacturing plant. 6K Inc. in North Andover will receive $50 million in funding to help build more sustainable batteries. Intel is bringing a program meant to accelerate startups to Kendall Square. The Intel Ignite program already has outposts in Israel and Germany. The software company says it plans to foster 10 new startups at its program in Cambridge. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Over the past two years, Republicans across the country, including some here in Massachusetts, have raised concerns about voter fraud. Some of those concerns are real. Some are unfounded. The people who actually run the elections in communities across the state insist the elections are secure. WBUR's Steve Brown spoke with several elections officials, including one preparing for early voting to begin this weekend. Brockton's election chief, Cynthia Scrivani, leads a class for poll workers. So we make sure that door is closed right here. Yeah. Right? It's closed. There's no ballots in there. Now we close that up and lock it. Okay? One step at a time, she explains how to set up a ballot box. Close it. Make sure this make thing sure here open. is open so it can receive ballots. You lock that, and that stays locked the whole day. For most of the poll workers, it's a refresher class. All right. Okay. There's nothing else. You have any questions? Nope. Okay. While election day is still more than two weeks away, local election officials are already busy with early voting about to begin and voting by mail already underway. In Brockton alone, over 7,000 voters have so far requested mail-in ballots, with requests still being accepted until November 1st. Scrivani says sometimes people ask for more than one. We have caught some duplicates, you know, because people mail two cards back, and I'm like, uh, I don't know if you think we're going to mail you two ballots, but we catch the duplicates. But it is very time-consuming, and it is a lot of work because everybody's using it, it seems. Scrivani has been overseeing Brockton's elections for 22 years. She says her staff makes sure voters can only cast a single ballot, whether they vote in person or by mail. And she says voters can also trust the equipment. We test these machines before every election, and we test them, and they come out exactly as they're supposed to come out. I think the only errors that would be made from the machines itself would be human errors. People make mistakes, but the machines are not online, so they're not hackable. 
Elections officials like Scrivani have been under intense scrutiny since 2020, when Donald Trump falsely claimed he won the presidential election. Now many other candidates across the country have repeated that claim or expressed concern about voter fraud. During a recent debate in Massachusetts, Republican candidate for governor Jeff Deal acknowledged Joe Biden was in fact elected president, but he also raised broader concerns that elections could be compromised. In fact, right here in Massachusetts, we saw that 11,000 people attempted to do mail-in balloting and vote in person at the same time. So I felt like there was the potential for election fraud. The Secretary of State's office says Deal's claim is false. It says only 327 ballots in the last primary were rejected because the person already voted. And it says the fact that it caught the extra ballots proves the system works. Professor Charles Stewart heads up MIT's Election Data and Science Lab. He says elections are secure in Massachusetts for several reasons. One is just the procedures in place, which range from um, just physical security to auditing and, and those sorts of things. I think the other thing about Massachusetts that needs to be underscored is that every ballot is on paper. And so there's opportunities, if there's any question about the results, to look at the ballots, look at what the voters did. Stewart also insists it would be difficult to steal an election with mail-in ballots. I would say that the mail balloting system in Massachusetts is as secure as in-person voting. Um, nefarious, evil people, um, bad actors, you know, they can circumvent the system. But I would emphasize it's hard to do that wholesale across the board. While most larger communities like Brockton rely on machines to tally votes, more than four dozen towns like Carlisle still count ballots the old-fashioned way. Our ballots go into an old-fashioned ballot box that gives a little ding when it's gone in, and it gives you a, a running total for how many ballots have been put into the box. That's Carlisle town clerk Peggy Wang describing one of the traditional ballot boxes they use. They're made of wood with a metal crank handle. The ballots are removed when we get to a count of every 300 so that the box doesn't jam. Those are removed by the police officer on duty. But even in the small town of Carlisle, Wang has heard increased concerns about election fraud, including in 2020. When we got to early voting in person for the November, someone brought in a ballot. I think she brought in two ballots. I said, look, you sent me two ballots. Hmm. And we looked at him and I said, ma'am, this one's for the primary and this one's for the November. So people are a little jumpy and looking for us to make mistakes. Whenever people raise concerns, Wang says she tries to be open about the process. If anybody questions it, I invite them to come to volunteer and see how elections work. And with voting getting underway, local election officials like Wang say every vote will count. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. I'm Rupa Shinomi in Boston. There's another hour coming up here on WBOR's Morning Edition. And later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Deb Becker is here to tell us what they've got for us today. Good morning, Deb. Good morning. Very Good nice to, to see you. Yeah, nice to see you as well. Um, so so today on Radio Boston, we're going to be talking about the mental health system, mm. which uh, by many accounts, of course, needs some 
help mm-hmm. and may not be effective for a lot of the people who try to access the system. So the medical director of the National Alliance on Mental Illness has written a resource guide. Um, he's included the stories of about 130 patients, um, and it ranges from everything from, you know, how do I know that there is a problem? Mm-hmm. When do I identify it? How do I get a diagnosis? What do I do about a loved one? What about a child? Mm-hmm. What about HIPAA? And then how do I get treatment? How do I advocate? A lot of questions, and it's a resource guide. We'll be digging into that guide with him That's uh, excellent. on the show today. And also, uh, hearing aids became <laughs> available over the counter this week. So we'll be talking with Hiawatha Bray about the technology behind hearing aids and and how do you figure out now what to do if you need a hearing aid. That's excellent. And that was a big thing for Elizabeth Warren. It was. She was a big champion. All right. Thank you, Deb. Thank you. That's Radio Boston today at 11 and 3. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faudel. From the war in Vietnam to the fight for civil rights, musicians have provided a voice for change. That's exactly what happened in 2019 in San Juan, where massive protests followed a government corruption scandal and the botched rebuilding after Hurricane Maria. And those protesters forced Puerto Rican Governor Ricardo Rosello to resign. Singer and songwriter Ile was right in the middle of it. Together with Bad Bunny and Residente, she made a song that became a rallying cry. That was our moment where we showed how much power it has that the whole country goes to the street demanding something and expressing their anger towards the government. Ile continues to call out injustices on a new album, Nacarile. There's a song on the album that became an anthem in Puerto Rico in the aftermath of those protests, Donde Nadie Mas Respira, or Where No One Breathes. And it's about corrupt governments, colonizers. They were seen from afar with airs of saviors. They disguised themselves as gods and we gave them flowers. But I don't see life. I see a slow death, a silence that annihilates without anybody realizing it. And at the time, you said that you wrote it for people in the world who might feel like they don't have the power to fix broken governments. And I heard frustration. Has Puerto Rico changed since 2019 when those protests showed the power of people? Well, it was a change in the elections, even though we we are still with the same party in the government, but you could see a change in the voting numbers. But at the same time, I feel that We are so used to feeling we're not worthy enough, we're not capable enough. It is frustrating uh, 
But at the same time, I keep feeling hopeful. And in Puerto Rico, I feel that we show things in subtle ways, you know, like for example, now in Hurricane Fiona, everyone in social media were saying, do not trust government funds, just send the funds directly to these organizations. And people were organized because we learned a lot from Hurricane Maria, but it seemed that the government didn't learn anything, you know? I wondered about the song, Cuando Te Miro. And depending on how you listen to the song, you could hear lyrics that might be about a toxic relationship or a ravaged planet, dry riverbeds, hurricanes. I'm the hurricane that devastates you. I'm the energy that crushes you. I'm your source of joy, your nourishment. I'm the one who primes you until you say, enough. What is this song about? I was thinking about a toxic uh, relationship, and I love that song. I worked it with Rodrigo Cuevas from Spain. I always try to get into these feelings, you know, that we go through a lot as human beings, and especially as, as women in this world where toxic relationships are so normalized. And for me, it was like a way of expressing that toxicity, mm -hmm. how we as women especially tend to be saviors of the relationship. And also men from a man's perspective that society tells them not to cry, not to manage their emotions and how toxic society has made us relate to each other as men and women, mm. you know, in, in a relationship. Yeah. I mean, we have to talk about Algo Bonito. Evie Queen raps, I've never thought that I look pretty or quiet. When I spit, it's like fire and acid. It's a way of trying to redefine what something bonito, something pretty is for us. Mm -hmm. People think that women like these cliches, you know, like flowers, chocolates and everything. And it's like so right. silly that we are have been treated like that, you know, as if that is going to calm us down or whatever. <laughs> like it's just saying, what is something pretty for us? Like something pretty for me is that we have our own right and that we should be treated respectfully and that no one can say anything about what we can or can't do with our own bodies. I mean, and yet so much of the world tells women what to do with their own bodies. When I was listening to this, I was thinking about right now, in this moment, women dying and protesting in Iran for the choice not to wear the hijab. Women in India asking for the choice to wear it. Women in the United States no longer able to access abortion care in parts of the country. Femicides among the highest in Latin America. Exactly, is that now the protests are happening, which is difficult, but at the same time empowering, and you know, it's necessary. Uh, but these things were happening still, you know, this oppression towards women 
because patriarchy says so. Is it why you put politics in your music to have these conversations? Yeah, definitely. For me, it's, it's my way of letting things go for a while and just having more energy to want to keep talking about this in a better way every time because there is a lot of social ignorance in this world and it can be cleared out in just a simple conversation and that's why it shouldn't be underestimated the power of communication you know of speaking things out in a respectful way and that's what i try to do Ile, her new album is called Nakarine. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, helping you find a Medix Medicare supplemental plan that works for you. Visit bluecrossma.com go. And Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The EU plans to sanction Iran for supplying Russia with drones used to damage Ukraine's energy infrastructure as Ukrainians brace for rolling blackouts. It's Thursday, October 20th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, a new investigation examines why the federal government is just considering banning asbestos now when its dangers have been known for decades. It turns out that the main reason, in recent years anyway, has been one industry. That's the chlorine industry. Also this hour, we look at Massachusetts ballot question two, which may impact the cost of dental care. We expect price changes to be relatively manageable. Right? Prices may increase a little bit, but you know nothing really dramatic. And the family of George Floyd has announced a $250 million lawsuit against the rapper formerly known as Kanye West. Sunny and upper 50s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Ukraine is bracing for four-hour power blackouts after Russia used drones to attack power stations in the country. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says a third of the country's power stations were hit. And he says Russia got those drones in violation of a 2015 U.N. Security Council policy from Iran. This is Russia focuses attacks on Ukraine's power, water and other vital infrastructure in the latest phase of its eight-month-old war. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says Russia's president Vladimir Putin's actions seem desperate. What we've seen uh, already in the steps that, uh, that Putin has taken, uh, going increasingly after the civilian population in Ukraine, um, indiscriminately bombing, targeting even, uh, power plants, uh, bombs falling on schools, uh, on hospitals, uh, that's pretty close. 
Speaking there to ABC News' George Stephanopoulos, Ukraine asked the U.N. Security Council to meet yesterday over the drones, and now EU states have frozen the assets of three individuals and one entity responsible for delivering them to Russia. This all comes as martial law takes effect today in the four regions Russia illegally annexed. President Biden's traveling to Pennsylvania today, less than three weeks before the congressional midterm elections. NPR's Barbara Front says Biden will be making stops in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. President Biden plans to tout his administration's trillion-dollar bipartisan infrastructure law during a visit in Pittsburgh. It's not the first time he's done that. He'll be speaking at the site where a bridge collapsed just hours before he was due to arrive in the city in January. Pennsylvania is considered perhaps the best pickup opportunity for Democrats as they fight to keep control of the Senate. In Philadelphia, Biden will appear at a reception for Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who's running for the open Senate seat against the Trump-endorsed celebrity TV doctor, Mehmet Oz. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, the White House. British Prime Minister Liz Truss faces increasing pressure to resign after a chaotic night in Parliament and the departure of another cabinet minister. And Pierce Frank Langford has more from London. After resigning under pressure, former Home Secretary Suella Braverman criticized Trust for implementing the very economic policies she ran against. Meanwhile, in Parliament, confusion reigned in Truss's Conservative Party over a vote on fracking. Conservative lawmaker Charles Walker spoke to the BBC. I think it's a shambles and a disgrace. I think it is utterly appalling. I hope all those people that put Liz Truss in number 10, I hope it was worth it. I've had enough. I've had enough of talentless people. Walker was referring to the perception that Truss filled her cabinet with lesser-known figures who wouldn't be able to challenge her for power. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. U.S. futures contracts are trading in mixed territory at this hour. The Dow futures contract is up about three-tenths of a percent. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoi. Negotiations will resume this morning to try and end a teacher strike in Haverhill. It's now in its fourth day. The teachers' union and school committee say they were close to a contract deal yesterday, but hit a stalemate on issues around school safety. The closure of schools is beginning to wear on some families. Nathan Hartwell has two children in the district. He says he's having trouble explaining the strike to his 8-year-old daughter, who is just recovering from remote schooling. For her, it's, you know, I have to sit at home and do math problems on a computer screen again. It's resulting in frustration and and tears and and anger at, at being isolated. Teachers in Malden voted yesterday to ratify their new three-year contract. They held a one-day strike Monday, the same day the strike began in Haverhill. Democrat Maura Healey and Republican Jeff Deal will meet tonight for their second and final gubernatorial debate before the election. WBUR's Anthony Brooks has a preview. Tonight's debate, co-hosted by WBUR, is expected to be much like last week's meeting between Healy and Deal, who are presenting Massachusetts voters with a stark choice. Deal's campaign says the Whitman Republican will continue to link Healy to what it calls Biden-like policies, which it says have produced high taxes, high gas prices, more government control, and less individual freedom. Expect Healy, the state's Democratic Attorney General, to continue to paint Deal as Donald Trump's endorsed candidate who opposes abortion rights and is out of step with most Massachusetts voters. The most recent poll from Suffolk University and the Boston Globe shows Healy leading deal by more than 20 points. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. You can catch tonight's debate at 8 here on WBUR and at WBUR.org.
Advocates for social workers in Massachusetts are investigating claims that children are sleeping in offices when they can't be placed in a foster or group home. The Department of Children and Families hasn't disclosed how many kids are sleeping in their offices. State leaders tell the Boston Globe they're trying to improve its recruitment of foster families, but lost many during the pandemic. The mayor of Newton is asking voters to approve three tax overrides that will total nearly $15 million. Mayor Ruth Ann Fuller says the money will go toward education, including rebuilding some schools. She believes the overrides will give the city an annual stream of money for years to come. Providing services and programs for our children and older residents. We'll be paving our roads and fixing our sidewalks. We'll be planting more trees and taking better care of our parks and athletic fields. The first in a series of public meetings on the proposal will be held this evening. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Ad Club's Women's Leadership Forum. In person on October 24th, hear from influential speakers and visionary women driving positive change in the world. Tickets at adclub.org. The Bruins are back at the Garden tonight. They'll face the Anaheim Ducks. And in your forecast, sunny today and windy at times with a high in the mid to upper 50s. Clear overnight with temperatures falling to around 40. Sunny again tomorrow and in the lower 60s. Sunny and 60s on Saturday. It's 43 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's gummies. Designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington. And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. Asbestos is a material that Americans don't hear much about anymore. But there was a time when it was pervasive, used in buildings, paint, fabrics, and car parts. That all changed, though, as the dangers of asbestos became apparent. And nowadays, most of us associate it with cancers and lawsuits over asbestos exposure. But it turns out the substance was never actually banned in the U.S. And after all these years, that may finally happen. It's a move that's facing lots of pushback from the chemical industry, which continues to use asbestos despite the health risks. All of this is detailed in a new report published today by ProPublica and NPR. Here to share more about the story are ProPublica reporters Kat McGrory and Neil Betty. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, I have to admit I was shocked that asbestos isn't banned in the U.S. What? Yeah, I even thought it was banned when we started reporting. It turns out that the U.S. only banned using asbestos in certain ways, so it was mostly banned in pipe insulation. Now, that was in the 70s, and we did see lots of companies voluntarily stop using the mineral, but that wasn't because the government told them to stop. It was more in response to a wave of lawsuits from people who were getting sick after being exposed to asbestos. And just to add, we quickly realized that the United States is an outlier here. Asbestos has been banned in dozens of other countries, including Australia, Chile, Saudi Arabia, and the entire European Union. Wow. So before we get more into that, Kat, can you remind us what about asbestos makes it so useful? Of course. Uh, Asbestos is a naturally occurring mineral that used to be mined all over the world. And what was so special about it was that it was durable and it was heat resistant. So it was used for things like bricks and drywall and insulation. Through the 1970s, really, asbestos was pretty much everywhere. And that was until people realized just how hazardous it was. 
And Neil, we mentioned the risk of cancer. Why exactly is asbestos dangerous? Asbestos is extremely dangerous. Individual asbestos fibers are so small that they're invisible to the naked eye. If you breathe them in, those fibers can move throughout your body and get lodged inside your lungs or your abdomen and do some real damage. Those fibers can stay in the body for decades, so over time that might lead to the scarring of the lungs or even several types of cancer like mesothelioma and lung cancer. Some of those have very low survival rates. Given all of that, one of the things we wanted to understand was why the U.S. has lagged behind on banning asbestos. And it turns out that the main reason, in recent years anyway, has been one industry. That's the chlorine industry. Okay, so what does asbestos have to do with chlorine? Well, the chlorine industry is responsible for pretty much all of the asbestos that comes into the U.S., Two companies have imported hundreds of tons of raw asbestos in recent years. Those companies say asbestos is essential for making chlorine at some of their older plants. That's because they're dealing with big tanks full of highly reactive chemicals that need to be kept apart. So they use thick metal screens coated with asbestos. Now, there are many plants in the world with newer technology that don't need any asbestos. But here in the U.S., there are about eight older plants that never made that change. And they make up about a third of the country's chlorine. And now we're going to hear some of those voices. We asked health reporter Sarah Bowden at member station WESA in Pittsburgh to drive up to Niagara Falls so she could see the old chlorine plant herself and spend time with some of the workers in the ProPublica NPR story. Just south of the Canadian border, a half-dozen men are gathered around two tables at Judy's Lounge Bar and Grill. They're paying for lunch with pensions they earned working one of the more dangerous jobs you could get in western New York. I'm going to have the poutine pot. Okay, on tater tots or fries? Fries. That's Mike Spicone. For four decades, he worked for Oxychem, which owned a chlorine plant here in Niagara Falls. About once a month, Mike and a handful of guys he used to work with at the plant, which they call Oxy, meet up for lunch. But the table this month is emptier. One of Spicone's old co-workers died this summer from bladder cancer. Another recently had surgery to remove a tumor. When I see my friends that worked in the plant at a young age getting all these different cancers, I have to wonder, was it because what they were exposed to? Spicone is talking about the many hazardous chemicals he and his friends worked with at the plant. One of those was asbestos. It's a nearly indestructible mineral, ideal for making chlorine, but it can be deadly to people. As a heavy equipment operator, Spicone used to transport 2,000-pound pallets of the stuff. When his payloader hit bumps, Spicone recalls little plumes of asbestos puffing into the air. It looked like talcum powder. It's been known for many years that asbestos causes cancer. But Oxy was allowed to keep using it by promising they'd follow extensive safety protocols. Mark Justiana says he felt pressured. If you open your mouth too much, the bosses start looking at you. As a father, he needed the job. I, had, I graduated high school. and I made $100,000 a year. Where else am I going to go making that kind of money? So it was, you know, a give and take. So Justiana and his colleagues tolerated the risk for decades. Then the plant closed last year. When those jobs disappeared, so did the incentive to stay quiet. Driving around the fenced-off perimeter of the Oxy plant, it looks like the city skyline on an alien planet, full of silos and sharp angles. Straight back, you see that 
it looks like it's 20 feet tall, that tan building with the white pipeline running around the roof line, that's J12 where the asbestos was brought and used. The chemical reaction to make chlorine also produces hydrogen. To keep those substances separate, people like Henry Sines would coat metal grates in an oatmeal-like paste of asbestos. But overnight, it would dry. And then you'd come in the next day and then you'd have to wash down before you got started to make sure you took care of any residue. But, I mean, it's still in the atmosphere and if it's dry, you know. Spicone jumps in. Every flat surface eventually would settle on. They remember how the dry asbestos would get into the hard-to-reach corners. It would pile up behind the lights, behind the fixture itself. Sign says the only time the asbestos would get cleaned up was before a pre-scheduled visit from federal regulators. They'd go to the parts of the plant that look good. It's like putting lipstick on a pig. What makes Signs and Spicone particularly mad is that by the early 2000s, there were ways to produce chlorine without asbestos, though that would have required Oxy to retrofit the plant. It's cheaper to extend the permits by lobbying. So instead, some Oxy employees believe they paid with their health. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Bowden in Niagara Falls, New York. All right, turning back to you, Neil and Kat, I know you spent the better part of a year reporting this story for ProPublica, and you heard from many workers in the chemical industry who've been exposed to asbestos. Can you tell us more about what you found? Yeah, in fact, we spoke to more than a dozen former workers at the Oxy plant in New York, and they said asbestos had hung in the air, that it had accumulated on the lights and the beams, that it was even inches deep in some places. They wore protective gear for some tasks, but they walked in and out of the building throughout the day without special suits or face masks. One guy we write about even seemed to have some always stuck to his mustache. And just to be clear, experts told us there's no safe level of asbestos exposure and that the situation in this plant was totally unacceptable and fraught with danger. Now, we should say that we reached out to Oxy for our report. The company said that the health and safety of its workers was its top priority. It also said that the accounts we heard at Niagara Falls were inaccurate, but it wouldn't specifically say what was incorrect. Okay, so in your story, you say it looks like the U.S. might finally ban asbestos after all these years. How realistic is that? There seems to be more momentum than we've seen before. In April, the Environmental Protection Agency announced a proposed ban on asbestos, a move that many public health experts said was long overdue. But that rule isn't finalized yet, and it may take more than eight months for that to happen. Meanwhile, the chlorine industry is fighting really hard to defeat the proposed ban or win some kind of an exemption. Once again, we're seeing the industry make the argument that the companies use asbestos safely, They've also got some real political heavyweights on their side, including a dozen Republican attorneys general. Now, we did speak to Michal Friedhoff, who oversees chemical regulation for the EPA, and she said her agency was not going to back down from the science and that our reporting really underscores the need for decisive action here. So, yeah, there's one line from your piece that really struck me. You write that asbestos is the quintessential story of chemical regulation. What do you mean by that? That's right. What we've seen here is a case of industry really calling the shots and, unfortunately, workers paying the price. And it's not only that. This is a test case with huge ramifications. There are a lot of observers who are looking at it and saying, 
If the EPA isn't able to ban asbestos, a substance that we've known is extremely dangerous for more than a century, will it be able to protect the public from any toxic chemicals at all? Hmm. We've been speaking to ProPublica reporters Kat McRory and Neil Betty about their new investigation into asbestos. Their full story is on NPR.org right now, and I should mention their reporting is ongoing. So if you have tips or your own stories, you can go to ProPublica.org chemicals to share them. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Coming up later today on All Things Considered, in the battleground state of Pennsylvania, the issue of crime and which political party can solve it better is heating up the election debate. To listen, tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, movie theaters in Kashmir were forced shut during a 1990s insurgency. Now the government of India will allow them to reopen for the first time. It's 819. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org cars, and thanks. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts. Catering diplomatic receptions, corporate celebrations, milestone events, and public galas in Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Artisanal cuisine and a focus on logistics. UncommonFeasts.com. Gather around. Let's feast. And Plymouth Rock Assurance. Auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. Corporations facing massive litigation are using a new bankruptcy strategy to avoid liability. It's known as the Texas Two-Step. When the richest and most powerful corporations in the country are using the federal bankruptcy system to avoid paying the most vulnerable people in the country, something is wrong. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Sunny today with a high of 57. There may be some gusty winds. Tonight's skies stay clear and temperatures fall to a low around 41. Tomorrow, a sunny Friday that'll be a little warmer with a high near 62. Right now, it's 44 degrees in Boston. Coming next month to WBUR City Space, a book launch party for Circle Round. The podcast now has a third kids' book. It's called The Great Ball Game, which is a classic folktale told by several North American indigenous groups. Enjoy a reading as well as some live music. The event is Saturday, November 12th. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at UMA.com slash NPR. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events 
to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from Linda Mood Bell Learning Centers, providing instruction for students to catch up or get ahead. Live, online, or in-person programs for reading, comprehension, and math. lindamoodbell.com NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadil. And I'm A. Martinez. Voters in Montana are dealing with some confusing information. Pamphlets the state started sending out 45 days before Election Day include inaccurate details due to last-minute changes in election law. Here's Montana Public Radio's Shaylee Rager. Montanans are able to register to vote on Election Day until 8 p.m., and IDs that don't include an address are acceptable at the polls. But the Secretary of State's pamphlet for voters says otherwise. It includes information based on laws passed by Republicans last year eliminating same-day registration and tightening voter ID requirements. The pamphlets were sent to voters to meet a required deadline before the laws were struck down in court at the end of September. The mail piece was so critical because that could have been their only interaction with the elections and the information is wrong. Ronnie Joe Horse is executive director of Western Native Voice, one of the advocacy groups that sued the state over its new election laws. She says she's concerned the pamphlets will sow confusion in rural Montana and on tribal reservations, where Internet and cell service is spotty. Horse says she hopes the state distributes corrected pamphlets, something the state hasn't yet commented on. She says rural voters already face barriers to participating, like long drives to the polls. Just a few more hurdles, I think, would deter people from voting. The snafu underscores how voting policies can change at the last minute with little time to educate voters. Montana was one of many states that passed restrictive new voting laws in recent years, some of which have been challenged in court. Connor Fitzpatrick, election supervisor in Lewis and Clark County, says his office is spreading the word about the changes on its website, social media pages, and by training election workers. By keeping all those avenues open, we can hopefully get as many people in the know about the rule set we're using as possible. Fitzpatrick says his office has been preparing to deal with changes in election law since the lawsuits were filed last year. But getting updates to voters is a challenge, especially as the office also tries to combat misinformation about election fraud that swelled after the 2020 election. For NPR News, I'm Shaley Rager in Helena, Montana. For the first time in two decades, movie theaters have reopened on the Indian side of Kashmir. That's a Himalayan region divided between India and Pakistan. Cinemas were forced shut there during a 1990s insurgency. And now the Indian government says it has restored calm, and reopening cinemas is one way to demonstrate that. But in Srinagar, going to the movies is very different from elsewhere in India. Rakshar Kumar reports. Young Kashmiris who've never set foot in a cinema grab buckets of popcorn. Before they sit down to a newly released Hindi action film in a plush multiplex. The movie itself is the same as in other theatres across India, but the experience of actually walking up to the theatre here is far from normal go through a police barricade and an army barricade and it has a small window through which a policeman with his gun can kind of peep out and see who's coming into the theatre. 
security forces have good reason to be here. Because on the same day this multiplex reopened, yet another terrorist attack, a joint party of CRP militants launched an attack in a neighboring district. Kashmiri separatists have fought Indian security forces for more than 30 years now. Some of them want an independent territory, others want to become part of Pakistan next door. Someone who has lived through all of this is Vijay Dhar. He's 81. His family has owned movie theatres here since the 1960s, including Srinagar's famous Broadway theatre. Broadway had the best sound in the country. But in 1989, militants declared all cinemas un-Islamic, ordered them shut, and attacked ones that stayed open. We had a bomb blast in the theatre, and I think in 1993 they burnt it. Kashmir used to have about 15 movie theatres. All of them had to close their doors. Some of them became malls, others became hospitals. But many of them are just heaps of bricks a still sensitive reminder of Islamist militant attacks. It looks like a very old, 30-40 year old building, just the shells of which are left. There are two layers of barbed wire. There's one a policeman who's standing right close to the dilapidated building. And what they're guarding is Kashmir's first cinema theatre, which used to be called Kashmir Talkies and later the Palladium. I remember as a young boy, if you were sitting in the balcony and watching the film, you usually watched it through a pall of cigarette smoke. Documentary filmmaker Sanjay Kak says Kashmir had one of the first theatres in all of India. So many Bollywood movies have been filmed here. But he wants the Indian government to prioritise other things first. Three years ago, it cancelled Kashmir's constitutional autonomy, flooded the streets with troops and cut off the internet. Since then, things have not returned to normal. So Kark sees the reopening of cinemas as a propaganda stunt. Opening a multiplex at a time when every other public space has been choked up, whether it's the media, whether it's campus life, all of that is shut down. Civil society is not able to operate. So what exactly is going on? Phone Back at the multiplex, security guards are frisking everyone who comes in. Kulsum Gulzar hasn't been to a theatre in Kashmir since she was a child. I used to go with my uncle there. So, Now, she's brought her five-year-old niece, Ira. Gulzar says she doesn't think it's against her religion to go to a theatre. And she doesn't see it as a political stunt either. It's just entertainment, she says. Does it bother her to watch a violent action film after all that Kashmir has been through? She doesn't have much of a choice, she says, until cinemas open with more options. For NPR News, I'm Raksha Kumar in Srinagar, Kashmir.
This is NPR News. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Up next, a new investigation finds that retired senior U.S. military officials are increasingly working as contractors or consultants abroad. It's 829. The Boston Book Festival is next Friday, October 28th, and next Saturday, the 29th. Get details at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Biden administration says there's abundant evidence Russia is using Iranian drones to attack targets in Ukraine, including ones in Kyiv. Moscow and Tehran deny it. NPR's Franco Ordonez says the so-called kamikaze drones are also getting the attention of the U.N. Security Council. Concerns about the use of Iranian drones against civilian targets were raised at a meeting of the United Nations Security Council. The State Department spokesman Ned Price said in a statement that the United States began warning in July that Iran was planning to send drones to Russia. He added, quote, we now have abundant evidence that these UAVs are being used to strike Ukrainian civilians and critical civilian infrastructure. This week, five people were killed in strikes from so-called kamikaze drones. Ukrainian officials say the Iranian-made drones hit energy infrastructure and a residential neighborhood. Price warned that the United States would not hesitate to use sanctions or other tools against Iran in response. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, Kharkiv. Later today, Ukraine's president is expected to repeat his call for the European Union to help Ukrainians make it through the cold winter months. Russian forces have been attacking water and power infrastructure in Ukraine, leaving cities and towns without electricity. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. In-person early voting gets underway Saturday in Massachusetts, and many voters who requested ballots by mail are now receiving them. It's all part of the lead-up to Election Day, which is in less than three weeks. Local election officials say they are reassuring people that this will be a fair and accurate election, despite the different methods of voting. WBUR's Steve Brown reports. Local officials say elections in Massachusetts are secure because all votes are cast on paper ballots and that they can return to those ballots if disputes arise. Most communities use optical scanners to tally the votes, and MIT political science professor Charles Stewart says those scanners are very accurate. Human beings are really bad at tedious things, and counting ballots is really tedious. We have research on the matter that shows that hand-counted paper ballots are less accurate than machine-scanned ballots. The scanners used in Massachusetts are not connected to the Internet and cannot be hacked. For 90.9 WBUR... I'm Steve Brown. The Boston City Council is honoring the young Iranian woman who died after her family says she was killed by Iran's morality police. Masa Amini has been accused of not properly covering her hair with her hijab. Her death has sparked worldwide protests. City Councilor Tanya Anderson is Muslim and says the protests are not a rejection of Islam. The forms of protest, particularly the burning of headscarves or hijab, are not rejections of faith, but rejection of the country's heavy-handed response to dissent, laws restricting women's rights, and the loss of self-determination. The council voted to recognize September 23rd, Amini's birthday, in her honor.
The new bridge linking Charlestown and the North End won't fully open until 2024. Replacement of the North Washington Street Bridge was scheduled to be done next spring, but construction problems and safety concerns have delayed its opening. State transportation officials tell the Boston Herald inspectors will check the repairs before contractors move forward with construction. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's As Anticipated, with works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere November 3rd to 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins will play the Anaheim Ducks. And in your forecast, clear skies and temperatures in the upper 50s today. There may be some high winds. Tonight it falls to the low 40s. Tomorrow we end the week with another sunny day in the low 60s. The sunny weather continues on Saturday. Then clouds move in on Sunday with a chance of rain. It's 44 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Hundreds of U.S. military veterans, including retired generals and admirals, have received permission from the U.S. to work for foreign governments, including countries with questionable human rights records. That's according to an investigation by The Washington Post. They include retired general and former National Security Agency director Keith Alexander, whose company was approved to work with Saudi Arabia just weeks after the Saudis murdered journalist Jamal Khashoggi. We're joined now by one of the Post reporters, Craig Whitlock, who worked on the investigation. Craig, your reporting shows that uh, around 95% of these requests are approved. Who are the these former military members who are working overseas and what's motivating them? So these are all retired military personnel. That means people who had served 20 years in uniform. And it runs the gamut from retired generals and admirals who often work as high dollar consultants to foreign militaries to uh, former grunts who work as helicopter mechanics, technicians, people who are really keeping the machinery of foreign militaries up and running. So it runs from uh, high-ranking people to low-ranking. Now, when the U.S. government says it stands for human rights but then allows former military officials to work for these countries, isn't that a contradiction of sorts? Well, it is, but the U.S. relationship with countries like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates is is one big contradiction, and it's Mm -hmm. been that way for, for decades. But particularly on human rights, um, United States supplies an enormous quantity of arms and weapons to these countries, but it's never quite reconciled uh, their repressive record on political dissent and human rights. And you mentioned General Alexander, uh, his contract with the Saudis to help them develop a college of cybersecurity was approved, as you pointed out, just weeks after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And this, this college he was working on was headed, was overseen by one of Crown Prince Mohammed's top deputies, a guy named Saud Qatani, who the U.S. government had actually imposed treasury sanctions on just a few weeks before General Alexander's application was approved. 
You know, presumably the, the generals, the retired generals and admirals have knowledge of America's most uh, secretive programs. Is there any monitoring of what these veterans are doing with foreign governments? There is up front. There is a counterintelligence review where the United States government at the Pentagon and at the State Department do a background check on these individuals. They check their security clearances. But once they start to work for foreign governments, you know, there really is no monitoring. They're sort of expected to abide by laws to protect classified information or not share secrets that are not authorized by Washington. But nobody's really keeping track of what they do or the extent of it. Now, you've tried to find out how much uh, these people are getting paid, but uh, you're not getting anywhere. What, what do you think is uh, the reason for this trying to be hidden, it seems? Well, I think it's the, the Pentagon and the Justice Department have said in court that they think it would subject these retired military members to embarrassment or even harassment if the public were to find out. And that's something that we're still pursuing. That's Craig Whitlock, investigative reporter for The Washington Post. Craig, thank you. You bet. The family of George Floyd is suing rapper Ye, formerly known as Kanye West, following comments he made about Floyd's death on a podcast. The $250 million lawsuit alleges the comments were defamatory and caused emotional distress. Joining us now is NPR's Matt Adams. Matt, let's start with what Ye said about George Floyd. So Ye was a guest on an episode of Drink Champs. It's a podcast hosted by a legendary Queens rapper, N-A-R-E. Along with his co-host, Miami hip-hop pioneer DJ Effin, he invites guests to join in an open conversation. The show's style is very much like friends hanging out at a bar, having a few drinks, and sharing some stories. Ye made many outlandish claims during the interview involving his wife, Kim Kardashian, and then he continued to make anti-Semitic remarks, which he has been recently suspended from Twitter and Instagram for doing, and then remarks about George Floyd's death. Ye questioned Floyd's cause of death, putting forth the idea that it wasn't Derek Chauvin who caused his death by kneeling on his neck for over eight minutes, but that he died from fentanyl use. They hit him with the fentanyl. If you look, the guy's knee wasn't even on his neck like that. Okay, can you tell us then uh, the response from the Floyd family? So a lawsuit has now been filed by Roxy Washington, the mother of Gianna Floyd. She's Droid's Floyd's daughter, only daughter, and the soy beneficiary of the estate, so Washington is acting in her interest. Through a statement released by the family's lawyers, Washington plans to sue Ye, his business partners and associates for harassment, misappropriation, defamation, and infliction of emotional distress, seeking $250 million in damages. What are the chances Ye will be able to claim that uh, what he said is protected uh, by the First Amendment? So I spoke with Roy Gutterman, the director of the Tully Center for Free Speech in the University of Syracuse, who said that Ye's First Amendment rights will be a factor in this case. He said there is no possibility of defamation action here because there would be no living plaintiff whose reputation has been damaged. Libel and slander require a live plaintiff, and family members or surviving family members do not have standing to sue for defamation. Is there another legal path possibly that this case could take somehow? Right. So one possibility, according to government, would be the allegation of intentional infliction of emotional distress, although it will be difficult to claim. Basically, the plaintiff has to prove that the statements were intentional or reckless, outside the bounds of acceptance, decency, etc. This tort is often a difficult claim to collect on, especially with a person like Ye, who's so well known in the media. However, proving this claim is possible. Notably, Sandy Hook families just successfully sued Alex Jones on the basis in, on this basis in the recent civil trial in, in, in Connecticut. What about the show, its hosts, yay, have any of them or all of them apologized? Drink Champs did issue an apology for airing of Ye's comments, and the episode has been pulled from YouTube and other listening platforms. A representative for the program told The Hollywood Reporter that the show tries to foster what it calls a free flow of ideas within the hip-hop community. 
but they said that Ye's interview contained false and hurtful information about Floyd's death, so they decided to pull the episode. Host NARE later called into a radio show to talk about the episode and issued an apology. But Ye himself hasn't issued an apology, and his representatives haven't gotten back to me for any kind of comment. All right, that's uh, NPR's Matt Adams. Matt, thanks for the update. Thank you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Layla Falden. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Some breaking news this morning. British Prime Minister Liz Truss just announced she is resigning. She took the job 45 days ago after the resignation of Boris Johnson. Truss says she will remain on until a successor is picked. She came under fire because of her economic plan, which was widely criticized and quickly abandoned after its rollout. Much more on this coming up at the top of the hour from the BBC. Next year on Morning Edition, another installment in our series of explainers on Massachusetts ballot questions. Today, question two, it's pitting dentists against their insurers over how premiums are spent. In your forecast, upper 50s and windy today under sunny skies. We fall to the low 40s tonight. Tomorrow, another sunny day to end the week in the low 60s. It's 44 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Ad Club's Women's Leadership Forum. In person on October 24th, hear from influential speakers and visionary women driving positive change in the world. Tickets at adclub.org. And the MIT Museum. Completely reimagined and now open in its new location in Kendall Square. Curious? Now in business news, a proposal to turn the former Liberty Mutual headquarters in Weston into a life science complex is receiving up to $150 million in funding. Boston-based Greatland Realty Partners says the development will consist of three buildings at the intersection of the Mass Pike and I-95. The first of those is expected to be complete by next summer. Framingham-based DTIQ is buying an Australian company that makes technology for drive through restaurants. DTIQ says the acquisition of Summit Innovations will allow it to expand into the quick-service restaurant industry. The terms of the deal were not disclosed. 10,000 high school students in Massachusetts participated in STEM internships this year. It was part of a push from the Baker administration to highlight science and math education in the state and to make it more accessible for students. It's 844. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Voters in Massachusetts are about to decide whether most of their dental insurance premiums should be spent on dental care. That's the crux of ballot question two. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel joins me now to walk us through it. Good morning, Gabriella. 
Thanks. Good to be here. Can we start with just the overall context? Like, why is this even an issue? Sure. So every month, people pay money for dental insurance, but only some of that actually goes to dental care. The rest pays for things like administrative costs for the insurance company. And some people want to change that? Yes. So ballot question number two would do two things. First of all, it would require that 83 cents of every dollar patients pay on insurance premiums be spent on dental care and things that improve the quality of care. So this is essentially stuff like cleanings and fillings and gum surgeries. The rest of that money, that 17 cents left over, would go to the insurance company for things like consumer hotlines, investigating fraud, and paying employees. The other big thing this ballot question would do is require dental insurers to share more financial data. Right now, the public doesn't know some basic things, like how much these companies currently spend on dental care. So that would be a big change. And I should say, if this passes, it's all supposed to go into effect in 2024. So who is campaigning for this measure and who are the people on both sides of it? Yes. So this fight is essentially pitting dentists on the yes side against dental insurers on the no side. Let's take a listen to a snippet of the Yes on Two campaign ad. I heard that if question two passes, dental insurance companies would have to give us money back if they spend less than 83% of our premiums on dental care. Right. That's why I'm voting yes on question two. It means better dental benefits. So essentially, the yes campaign is saying patients deserve to know that the bulk of their premium dollars go to patient care and not the salaries of insurance executives. I spoke with Andrew Tonelli, a dentist with the Massachusetts Dental Society. He says for years he's been trying to get the state legislature to require more transparency from dental insurers. And the pandemic added urgency to this issue. In 2020, dental offices were closed for three months. And, you know, people were still paying their dental insurance premiums. He wonders what happened to all that money that wasn't spent on routine care. But we don't know because we haven't had that transparency. We haven't had that accountability. Okay, so supporters argue this will create some accountability for insurance companies. But what do the insurers say about this? They warn of pretty serious consequences if it passes. Here is how the opponents put it in their campaign ad. According to an expert study, if question two passes, dental costs could go up by as much as 38% for Massachusetts businesses and families. Now, it's worth noting the expert study you hear referenced here was commissioned and funded by a trade group for dental insurers. The no campaign folks say this ballot measure would disproportionately hurt people who can least afford increases in the cost of dental care. Here is their spokesperson, Jim Welsh, a former state lawmaker. This, you know, ballot question would really negatively affect the smaller um, insurance carriers. Um, the ones that probably provide, you know, dental insurance to employers, smaller mom and pop type organizations. Welsh says the higher prices could lead some employers to change the dental coverage they offer or stop providing coverage. And what are the experts saying about this ballot measure? Well, it's interesting because if it passes, it would make Massachusetts the only state to require dental insurance companies to spend a set amount of premium dollars on actual care. But there is some precedent for this. A similar system already exists for health insurance. And one expert I spoke to pointed out that this is done for Medicaid dental products in a number of states. Hmm. Are insurance companies right that this could make dental care more expensive? 
That is the question, right? So Evan Horowitz at Tufts University did some analysis of this, and he found that it is possible. But he says he doesn't anticipate a huge impact on cost. We expect price changes to be relatively manageable. Right? Prices may increase a little bit, but you know nothing really dramatic. The thing is, it's hard to be sure because, again, we have very limited data. However, the ballot measure does set up state oversight of significant insurance premium increases. And Horowitz says this ballot measure basically boils down to a fight over who gets a bigger piece of the insurance premium pie, either the insurance companies or the dentists. That's WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel on ballot question number two. Thanks so much for breaking it down for us. Be happy to help. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. At 3.8%, the unemployment rate is the lowest it's been on record. The Marketplace Morning Report looks at what will happen to that rate if there's an economic downturn. That's coming up. And then at noon today, it's here and now, and Anthony Brooks is here in studio to fill us in on what they're going to be talking about. Hi, Anthony. Hey, Rupa. Good to see you. Well, of course, the big news today comes out of Britain. Prime Minister Liz Liz Truss announced that she is resigning, ending the briefest and possibly the most chaotic term ever served by Mm. a British PM. Trust, of course, tried to enact a conservative fiscal plan that backfired badly, causing chaos in the markets, causing support for the conservatives to plummet. So we'll have the latest on that, what it means for the conservative party and the future of Britain. We're also going to be uh, looking at the midterm elections, with less, which are less than three weeks away. We're looking at three races for governor in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. They're important races. They're close. And the contest is between Democrats who are focusing a lot on abortion and election deniers, while Republicans hope to win by focusing on inflation and the overall economy. And finally, my colleague, colleague Robin Young has a great conversation about the cookie Bible cookbook from Rose uh, Levy Berenbaum. Everything you need to know about cookies, how to cook them, and why they are sacredly delicious just in time for the holidays. Sounds yummy. Yeah. Thank you, Anthony. That's here and now today at noon. You can listen to debate live tonight at 8. That's uh, the gubernatorial candidates uh, with Tiziana Deering here on WBUR and WBUR.org. It's 8.51. WBUR supporters include the Boston Book Festival, presenting 200 authors in person in Copley Square on Saturday, October 29th. Details at bostonbookfest.org. And New England Innovation Academy, preparing middle and high schoolers through human-centered design. Open house tonight, neiacademy.org. The government agency whose funding violates the Constitution. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Viking. Exploring the world in comfort, Viking offers a small ship experience with cultural enrichment and destination-focused dining. More at viking.com. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. First up, we just learned UK Prime Minister Liz Truss has resigned. This is after a disastrous budget plan and tax cuts that sank the pound and led to a revolt in her own party. We'll have more on that later this morning. Now we turn to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB. It is funded in a way that violates the Constitution. That is the ruling from a federal appeals court in New Orleans. The court's reasoning is that the CFPB doesn't get its money from Congress. It gets it through the Federal Reserve, and that, the judges ruled, 
violates the separation of powers. Marketplace's Nova Sappho is here with more. Hi, Nova. Hi, Sabri. So remind us, uh, what is the CFPB? So Congress created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in 2010 during their recovery from the Great Recession. And its job is to be the single point of enforcement for federal consumer financial laws, such as the Fair Credit Reporting Act, Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, a bunch of others. Essentially, the agency oversees rules having to do with banks and other financial companies. So what specifically about being funded by the Federal Reserve uh, is unconstitutional? So Congress, yeah, chose to structure the CFPB's funding through the Federal Reserve instead of requiring it to get congressional appropriations on a regular basis. Now, the idea there was to insulate it from political pressures. Now, a group representing payday lenders brought a lawsuit challenging that notion. And what the three-judge panel of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said is that Congress can't just cede its appropriations power, that that element of it is unconstitutional. Oh, well, so, so what happens now? So the next step for the Bureau would be to either ask the full Fifth Circuit Appeals Court to reconsider the case or to take it to the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court has been here before. A couple of years ago, it ruled in a narrow 5-4 decision, I might add, on another structural question involving the CFPB. At the time, the court chose to make some tweaks to CFPB structure, but allow the agency to stand. Of course, the court is now comprised differently, and we'll have to see how this challenge goes. All right. Marketplace is Nova Sappho. Thank you so much. Thank you. A lot of people working from home have saved valuable time by not having to commute. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York tallied those hours up. And in total, Americans are spending 60 million fewer hours traveling to and from work every day. So what are we doing with all that extra time? Marketplace's Savannah Marr went to find out. Shashi Belamkanda rarely had enough time for the daily walks his doctor recommended until he started working remotely. Now, walking is part of his routine, and it sparked another hobby. I started taking a lot of pictures of flowers. I now know a lot of names of flowers. He also talks to his parents in India more often through a smart speaker. It is almost like dropping in and being in the same room together. So I do that very regularly every day. The New York Fed looked at data from the American Time Use Survey and found that younger Americans are working out and going out more. Older folks are spending more time on childcare and chores. For Callie Serber, working from home means more peaceful mornings. I don't have this like, oh, I gotta get in the car, I gotta get in by a certain time, and there's more time to like get the kids breakfast, their hair up in a ponytail. Plus, her garden is in better shape. Another perk of losing the commute? Lots of us are sleeping more. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is down two-tenths of a percent. Uh, NASDAQ and S&P futures are down in the two to four-tenths percent range. The Dow future is up six points. That is less than a tenth of a percent. And demand for mortgages has fallen to its lowest level since 1997. Compared to this time last year, demand for mortgages is 38% lower. That is directly the result of rising interest rates. The Fed's been raising rates to fight inflation. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business is dedicated to simplifying the process of buying supplies. 
and by Fidelity Investments, introducing Fidelity Income Planning. Build a plan for income that lasts. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Despite the warning signs of a potential looming recession next year, the labor market in the U.S. is still very strong. That has proved an enormous benefit for Latino workers. In particular, last month, their unemployment rate was 3.8%, the lowest it's been on record. But if we do see a real economic downturn, what happens then? Marketplace's Matt Levin reports. When the economy starts to take a turn for the worse, the Latino unemployment rate usually spikes higher and faster than the national average. That's partly because Latinos disproportionately work in industries more vulnerable to business cycle downturns, says economist Jay Bryson at Wells Fargo. Latinos make up about 18 to 19 percent of the workforce. They make up 33 percent of the employment base in the construction industry. And as we're seeing right now, home building is really starting to weaken. New home construction is down 7.7% from last year. Carmen Sanchez coming at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth says the low unemployment rate we're seeing amongst Latinos right now may be a little deceptive because it doesn't measure those who have left the labor force entirely. Women in particular had way disproportionate care responsibilities. They had to stay home because of like school disruptions and medical disruptions, all of it. Still, there are reasons to think Latino workers may fare better this time around than in previous downturns. While construction is still a major source of Latino employment, it's not as important as it used to be, says Mark Hugo Lopez, an economist with the Pew Research Center. Back before the Great Recession, construction was the single largest sector of employment for Latino workers. Today, it's actually white-collar jobs and office workers who are the single largest group. Lopez says that's because a younger cohort of U.S.-born Latinos with college degrees have entered the job market. We have more of a U.S.-born, U.S.-educated workforce that is different than, say, the more immigrant-focused workforce of the 90s or early 2000s. There's a possible downside to that, too, though. The median age for Latinos in the U.S. is about nine years younger than the rest of the population. And younger workers are often more likely to be laid off than those with more seniority. I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. British Prime Minister Liz Truss has resigned after a brief chaotic term. The BBC will have more on that coming up next. First in your forecast, sunny and near 60 today, clear and low 40s tonight. Tomorrow, sunny and low 60s, then it's the weekend. Sunny and mid-60s on Saturday, cloudy and around 60 on Sunday. Right now it's 45 degrees in Boston, and we are right at 9 o'clock. And again, the BBC is next. Corporations facing massive litigation are using a new bankruptcy strategy to avoid liability. It's known as the Texas Two-Step. When the richest and most powerful corporations in the country are using the federal bankruptcy system to avoid paying the most vulnerable people in the country, something is wrong. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm All Things Considered executive producer Jonathan Kane, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. 
WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.